The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you so much uh, to the National Committee for inviting me, to all of you for having me for sponsoring this event, and to, for being here before the primaries, before all the excitement to listen to talk about China-Russia relations. So today I'm going to take you on a journey of this relationship to start with a, a brief history, and then I'll go straight into the contemporary period and talk about the ties, how to think, unpack this relationship, and what the U.S. could learn or do about it, as well as how we can think about the two countries in comparative perspective, how much they're learning from one another as they go along and face their own challenges. So let me see. Okay, it's clicking fine. So if we go back more than 100 years ago, even before uh, the beginning of the communist period, China-Russia relations have always been a tumultuous one. In 1858, there was a treaty signed between China and Russia, the Qing Empire, and Russian Empire that gave away a lot of land uh, to, to Russia from China, over 600,000 kilometers of land along the China-Russia border. This was the first important agreement that remains heavily ingrained in nas national conscience uh, amongst Chinese publics, including young people who continue to debate this treaty on the Internet. So there's all kinds of discussions that go back so far Ago. If we fast forward some hundred years, if we go to 1950, the establishment of the People's Republic of China was followed by a proclamation of an alliance between the Soviet Union and China. As you see here on the left, the poster says in both Chinese and Russian, friendship forever. So there was a strong uh, uh, imagine, ima imaginative ties, but also real substantive alliance that was formed, but didn't last very long. The fr friendship was short-lived. In 1960s, we see Sino-Soviet split followed by border conflicts or skirmishes in 1969, which, once settled, have still yielded a heavy militarization on both sides of the border. So cities that are now popular with tourists, such as Vladivostok in the Russian Far East or Suifenhe in China, were not accessible to common residents you know, for travels. It was a really heavily guarded zone for over two decades. Until China started to open up economically, to reform its economy, open up to the world, the relationship between China and Russia has started to come together, has started to warm up and get closer, but then again, it faced new challenges uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. And this was something of a warning sign, an anti-model uh, for Chinese regime to follow, to think about. So it was another kind of tension because they were quite disappointed in China with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the sharp, uh, drastic opening up of the political system in particular. So when we come a little bit closer to the current period, when Putin comes to power over a decade ago now, the relationship has started to get even closer. The ties are warming, especially in the past several years when Russia is starting to pivot towards Asia, away from the United States and Europe and more towards the East, in particular towards China. As a result, a lot of alarmist bells have started to spring up in the U.S. foreign policy community when it comes to China-Russia relations, as well as in Western media reports. Things like the world's superpower, superpower access, be aware of collusion of China and Russia. China and Russia are partnering to undermine the U.S. China-Russia, new world order. All of that sounds quite scary, right? There's this notion of the two countries really coming together and particularly coming together vis-a-vis -vis the United States and posing a threat to us. A lot of analysis in recent years have focused on the threat collusion theory, the idea that we have to counteract the threat. There's a lot of dangerous things happening between the two countries that we have to be aware of and we have to manage carefully. So what's behind the collusion theory? What's the collusion dynamite, so to speak? There are a number of factors that people point to that suggest that the relationship is getting closer and closer. And today I'm going to unpack all of these different factors and argue the fact that the relationship is more symbolic than substantive in nature. 
I'm going to argue today that the symbols, however, matter because they're being projected heavily in domestic media on both sides. And in turn, they yield a certain nation-building card for both China and Russia, again, for domestic nation-building. That's something that I'm going to cover in my second part of the talk. But before we get there, let's think about the key pillars. What is actually behind the so-called collusion imagery that's projected in Western press and in foreign policy community? First, there's trade, the economy. The trade is the volumes are increasing. The projection for this past year was $100 billion, although, as I'll mention earlier, I mentioned later, sorry, they, they haven't actually met this target uh, to date. Uh, there's the defense cooperation, military and naval drills, both in Asia and recently in the Mediterranean, and arms sales that are going from Russia to China, some sophisticated weaponry, and it's hard to research, but there are definitely increasing evidence of the fact that Russia is selling some pretty high-end weapons um, to China. The most important, and there's the energy deal, $400 billion deal signed in 2015 that was marked as a huge success, something the two countries have worked towards for years and years, if not decades, that was marked as a big celebration, you know, on the two sides and with much media coverage uh, pertaining to that energy deal, with gas being shipped over, or to be shipped over, the pipeline is yet to be built, is to be shipped over from Siberia and the Far East over to China. So it's a huge project uh, that's to last over about 30 years, you know, until completion. And finally, and importantly, there's the geopolitics of this relationship. Two countries often work together in some ways undermining global or Western interests. For example, voting down UN Security Council resolutions in the past decade, six times uh, that this has happened. Six times they have voted down UN Security Council resolutions jointly, especially against the U.S., but also against Western efforts at various interventions, especially when it comes to military interventions uh, in different regions of the world. In addition, there's sort of regional collaboration that's taking place, especially in Central Asia and Asia-Pacific, through China-led institutions, such as Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and recently started a China-led Asian Infrastructure Development Bank that Russia is a member of and is actively contributing to. So all those things suggest that perhaps the partnership is getting closer. But if we look a little bit beyond the surface, we find that these collusion pillars are kind of fragile building blocks, and each one of them has significant uh, challenges and weaknesses. So to start with the economy, in the past year, with Russia's economy slowing down in light of sanctions, Russia was really relying and hoping for Chinese investment to basically balance out the lack of investment from the West. These hopes, however, were not fulfilled with many Russia experts, commentators, and politicians now talking about China-Russia relationship as a one-sided love affair. As you see here in 2015, direct investment from China has decreased and is almost on par with the numbers that we saw in 2007, a huge decline from 2014, 2013, 2012. If we look at the trade, the, the volume in trade has actually been collapsing as well by 35% in the past year. That's something that is also affecting Russian economy and has yielded the sense of disappointment in the relationship that I've, I've talked about um, just now. But... Uh, Basically, the numbers that we hoped for, the $100 billion volume, was not, um, was not implemented, and it's slowing down as we speak. That's tens of billions. Yes, tens of billions. The gas deal, significant celebration from just a year ago with all this photography and imagery of uh, you know, significant success, has also been stalling in light of dropping gas prices in Russia, in the world as well, but also due to technological and bureaucratic issues on the Russian side. The pipeline that's supposed to extend 4,000 kilometers along the Russia-China border has only been built up to 80 kilometers so far. 
And so there's a lot more kilometers, as you can imagine, to be built, and a lot of disagreements as to how is it going to be built, who is going to be responsible for all the infrastructure development, what kind of labor forces will they need, is there enough investment, and so forth. For now, the projections for dealing with this are far beyond 2020, and I think there are going to be more and more delays as to how this deal is going to be implemented. Let's see. And now if we go from just China and Russia to the region, so the notion of cooperation in Central Asia, that's something that a lot of people are worried about, the idea of Russia's initiative in Central Asia, Eurasian Union, working together with China's Silk Road to undermine U.S. interests in Central Asia. In reality, what we see is that these two initiatives are also competing against each other. So the Eurasian Union, uh, Russia-led initiative, is often aimed at multilateral agreements, whereas China's efforts are on surface multilateral, but China is tracking a lot of bilateral economic agreements with various nations in Central Asia and doing so quite successfully. It's actually investing significantly in economic terms, and that inevitably undermines Russia's interest in what it claims to be its near abroad. Central Asia has always been the region that has been culturally uh, similar to Russia, but now a lot of uh, people there in schools, universities are learning Chinese, and there's a lot of more cultural closeness as well between Central Asian states and China. So shift away from Russia and towards China, inevitably yielding competition between these two entities. In addition to that, we have the Far East uh, on the Russian side that was supposed to be a joint development project between Russia and China. China was to invest heavily in the, in the, in the development of the region and in turn would benefit from various resources, natural resources that are present in the Russian Far East. As we look at it now, in fact, it's still lagging in economic resources and Russia is starting to use the region as an economic kind of competitive chip by attracting investment from Japan and other nations in Asia Pacific. So again, instead of being just a collaborative project, it's more of a competitive uh, place as well. And I think in the future, we're going to see more and more tensions arising from this competition. Finally, if we think about the anti-Western rhetoric, the geopolitics of voting down UN Security Council resolutions and projecting an alliance that's aimed against the West, I would argue that this rhetoric is both uneven, but also not substantiated in any military action. If we think about the uneven nature of this rhetoric, whereas Russia is readily projecting this idea of a close military alliance between the two nations, China is much more careful about projecting this image to the world and often talks about more cultural and kind of softer diplomatic ties with Russia. So Russia is more isolated, of course, from the global community in light of sanctions, and China is still heavily integrated into the global system. So the anti-Western notion of alliance, you know, going against the West, is really quite more skewed uh, towards Russia, and China is not supportive of this rhetoric uh, on a regular basis, especially as it's projected through the media. In addition to that, uh, the military support for these diplomatic statements, for example, China being quite diplomatic and in the middle when it comes to the Ukrainian crisis, was not substantiated by any military forces, military actions, similar to Russia making soft statements about South China Sea, but in reality the kind of support it can actually lend to China is, is, is doubtful. So it's, it's tricky to, and it's important to separate the diplomatic support, the language, the rhetorics from action, which is, uh, is a distinct matter in this case. Beyond the, the mistrust from the top down, all the centralized policies and economic relations and geopolitical relations, it's important to think about this relationship also from the bottom up. So in particular, the China-Russia border, a space where I spent about a year carrying out research, I found that there are significant tensions amongst people on the Chinese and the Russian side, in particularly when it comes to local officials, uh, policymakers, and even business people on the Russian side being very suspicious and fearful of Chinese expansionism. 
So the idea that appears to be uh, an investment plan from the top down, from Russian government, to pivot towards the east, is not always appreciated and certainly not always implemented by local officials on the ground who are actually very afraid of China because they're bordering it and they see the influx of labor and investments. This in turn yields tensions on the Chinese side because there's significant delays in implementation of projects. I already talked about the gas pipeline, but when it comes to micro projects as well, the workers and the companies I've spoken to and interviewed uh, have discussed seven-month delays in visas, for example, waiting for visas and documents to go over uh, to Russia. That's something that caused significant economic uh, frustration and, and losses for these companies. In addition to these kind of delays, once they actually get to Russia, it's difficult to link up to local um, businesses. They don't often speak the language on the Chinese side, and there are a lack of intermediaries as well to make the relationship more uh, successful. So a lot of frustration uh, on the ground, but also in terms of societal frustrations. I talked about this agreement from 1858 that is still quite present in, in China's national conscience. Well, just last year, there were talks about renaming a village, a township actually, within Heihe, which is already quite small on China-Russia border, renaming it to Aigun, which is the name of the treaty, the unfair, bitter treaty that was struck between China and Russia. They gave away the land to Russia. So a lot of support came from young people, nationalistic groups online that actually wanted to rename the region and to that way to kind of think through and uh, not celebrate but at least commemorate um, this agreement and to commemorate how far China has come. Now China is a stronger partner in this, in this relationship. So both from the top down, from the bottom up, we see significant uh, both inefficiencies but also tensions and mistrust. At the same time, though, the imagery of the relationship, the idea that they're so close, is really real. It keeps being projected through the media. On both sides, my analysis of Chinese and Russian media coverage of the relationship suggests that this is something that they really want to show to their domestic audiences. So when we think about media coverage, the kind of, oh, sorry, I went to the wrong slide, but the kind of media coverage that we see on both sides is quite similar. It's very positive. The relationship is portrayed in a positive light. And we also see similar keywords that kind of uh, associate with the alliance. Strategic partnership, intensified cooperation, equal standing, mutual interest. All those words are used to describe China-Russia relationship in both Russian and Chinese media. Occasionally, we see sensationalist images on the Chinese side, in Chinese commercial media, more nationalistic stance, and sometimes we also see more critical outlook in Russian media, reflective pieces about what does Russia actually benefit from in its relationship vis-a-vis -vis China. But if we think about the official media, television, which is consumed by the majority population on both sides, the presentation is largely positive and quite similar um, on the two sides of, the, of this coin. So what I argue here is that the notion of this uh, projection is important not as much for global kind of imagery, not so much because it's substantiated in practice, but because it serves some useful purpose for nation building on both sides. Specifically, it plays into the great power imagery that's projected on by both China and Russia, and also to the rhetoric of surviving historic national humiliation, something the two nations strongly support and actually celebrate together, as I will talk about in a moment. And lastly, in a way, it also legitimizes the more centralized, personalized approach to governance, to leadership, that's now being practiced by Xi Jinping and Putin. In some ways, they're converging together in terms of how they see leadership and governance as they go further. So to start with this notion of great power status, in both countries, uh, both leaderships have used the media and also other discussions and policy forums to project this idea of great power status. Russia has launched a very successful and powerful propaganda information campaign when it comes to the Ukraine crisis. There was a lot of content that was uh, really quite sophisticated and convincing with many people, the majority of the public on the Russian side, supporting Ukrainian conflict. 
When it comes to China, a lot of coverage of uh, South China Sea and the strong role that China plays in Asia-Pacific as a leader of the region. Both sides seem to benefit from having this notion of China-Russia relationship as it plays into this great power rhetoric. Russia is able to say no to the West, at least you know, in, its, in the way it projects itself to its domestic public, and China is able to say that it can stand up to the West because it has another partner, Russia. Again, how substantiated that is in practice is, is, is a different story, but that's how the story is told to domestic population in both cases. In addition to that, and it's particularly manifested uh, in that, this great power imagery, in this historical memory, invoking historical suffering. So last year, 2015, there were two big parade celebrations, huge spectacles, media spectacles, and uh, national celebrations of remembering commemoration of World War II on both sides. Russia has held the biggest parade yet in its history, and China has held its first parade, and a giant event which was not attended by most leaders, most global leaders. So Western leaders have largely boycotted the events, but China and Russia stood side by side together in commemorating the two events. On the left side, you see here Xi Jinping with his wife uh, attending the parades in Russia, and just months later, we see a similar imagery of Putin side by side with President Xi celebrating and commemorating the horrors of World War II, especially vis-a-vis -vis Japan, as China has experienced and is continuing to commemorate. Both media coverage of the events suggested that they were the leading guests. So Russian media has talked about President, President uh, Putin being the honorary guest uh, in China's celebration, the leading guest amongst 20 leaders attending the event. On the Chinese side, the notion of Xi being the only the key leader attending Russian parades was also widely documented and popularized through the media, with the idea being that even though most of the West is cutting out Russia, here we have our partner, our only loyal friend, China, is attending our most important national celebration. In both cases, this, this attendance of events was highly popular, popularized on the Internet, a lot of public support for the two leaders, a lot of discussions of what China and Russia relations mean, and all playing into national pride that they both have overcome historic humiliation and are continuing to prosper. Both imagery kind of showing them on equal standing, even though, of course, we see the relationship as highly unequal, with China being the stronger partner, but the way it's projected is that they're actually quite close and they're supporting each other. Finally, when we think about uh, beyond national humiliation and nation building as a, as a way to project great power status, there's also the idea of how policy gets implemented, what kind of uh, system do we have in both countries. And I would argue that in recent years, we do see some elements of convergence in governance between President Xi and President Putin, some commentators jokingly calling it Putin-Xi bromance and so forth. Of course, those are very colloquial terms. But if we think about observing you know, the, the way that policy gets implemented in both countries, there's more emphasis on top-down, centralized, personalistic approach to governance. We see this with anti-corruption campaigns on the Chinese side. We see similar campaigns with other, in other issue realms uh, on the Russian side. And we also see a lot of mutual kind of discussion, admiration for the one leaders, one stronghold leader approach. As opposed to institutions, the party, society at large, it's very important to have this imagery of one strong leader, as it appears here as uh, embedded by Putin and Xi. The imagery that they project, of course, are quite different. There's a sort of macho, uh, unapproachable image of Putin, which is projected through Russian media, which is widely admired, by the way, also by Chinese netizens. And on the right side, you see Father C, the imagery of a warm, approachable leader, uh, somebody who responds to your questions and queries. C uh, Dada is, uh, you know, calling him Great Father C, Uncle C, Class Leader C, somebody who is really in charge, but also warm and helpful. A very different imagery here from Putin, but both of them are really focused on the leader himself. Something that's not new for the Russian case, Putin has been 
head of this kind of leadership for quite a while now. But that's something that's actually very different for China. We didn't see this with Hu Jintao or with any previous leaders in the reform period. So it's important to think about to what extent are some of these features traveling across borders? Is China indeed learning some of these features? Is it just because the two leaders are close to each other as personalities? Do they seem to project a similar kind of imagery? Or is there something more to that? So I'm going to play you very briefly a tiny video about how Chinese uh, young people think about Russia. And this is a video that was done and carried out by official sources in China uh, before President Xi went to Russia to attend the parades. And as you see here, there's going to be a lot of talking about Putin and uh, his popularity in uh, Chinese social media sphere. Okay, I'll stop here. But you get the idea that there's a lot of admiration and kind of warm language associated with President Putin, which I don't think we see that much of in the West. There's a lot more fear and antagonism. In the Chinese case, indeed, beyond this video, which is constructed by official sources, uh, my observations and conversations with young people in China have, have yielded some similar findings, kind of a mix of not fear, but some sort of admiration, mystique, and the notion that, indeed, the two leaders are kind of converging and coming closer together as people, as individuals, even if the countries are somewhere wide apart. So, as we move forward and we think about um, what this relationship means, you know, for the United States and also how it's going to progress in the years to come, I would argue that the substantive elements of the relationship are going to continue to be rather on the weaker side as Russia's economy is still staggering and we shouldn't expect too much progress on the gas deal in the next year or two. So the similar tensions that I've discussed here on the local level, on the border areas, etc., are likely to persist. But the relationship itself, the way it's projected to popular audiences, especially domestically, is, is going to continue to be strong. So what we're going to see is that both media and both countries and both leaders are going to use a strong man's language and to talk about the relationship as vital, as important, as colorful, as close. So the rhetoric of this relationship is going to persist, but the substantive elements are probably going to continue to lack. So as two countries still face significant challenges domestically with economic reforms, with managing uh, domestic demands for various societal changes, reforms in different sectors, it's more and more important to have symbols in nation building. And I think the symbols of this relationship can be quite helpful for both President Xi and especially President Putin. So I'll stop here and I'll take any questions. Thank you. What does it mean for the United States? What should we be doing if your interpretation of that it's symbolically there, but substantively it's going to land? What does that mean? What should U.S. policies be in this trilateral relationship? So I think the first step uh, to assessing this policy is to move away from the rhetoric of collusion and fear-mongering notions of this relationship, but to think more about understanding the complexity of the relationship, seeing this kind of dimension, the weaker dimensions of this relationship, and trying to understand more of what the two are learning from each other, especially in the case of China, learning from Russia in this case, as opposed to just seeing them two as very strong allies that are trying to undermine the United States. That said, I think there are certain policies that could be applied on a more pragmatic level, especially when it comes to the economy. When we think about the Russian Far East, the region that's really rich in resources, I think there are efforts that could be done by the United States and also indirectly because the U.S. cannot really you know, invest itself due to sanctions, but it can encourage Japan, for example, to invest more in the region or to allow it to be more involved in Russia. And that way to balance out China's engagement in Russia and in some ways to kind of separate them out a little bit and to create more room for competition in Asia-Pacific. So I think this is, this is one policy that's, you know, very practical and it's not too complex. As I've read some reporting actually from Japan, there's some uh, support for this initiative. So we could see more of that developing in the near future. 
One of the old principles of, of uh, Chinese foreign po policy is non-interference in the territorial affairs of others. That has been fundamental since 1979. Talk about the Chinese reaction to the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. Okay. Difficult question. Let me try to tackle it. So the reaction to this uh, crisis has been twofold. On the one hand, there was a consistent rhetoric of a very diplomatic response where they both don't show support explicitly, but they also don't critique Russia. So there's been kind of this twofold approach where there's constant language about multilateral agreements, the idea that the community, international community as a whole should deal with the crisis, but at the same time, no critique of Russia per se, which is something that has been frustrating uh, to Western leaders, because as we saw, of course, there's been very harsh actions that have been undertaken by the United States and Europe with regard to Ukraine. We don't see this on the Chinese side. At the same time, there's also kind of a mixed rhetoric amongst experts on the ground, Russia experts within China, with some of them talking about the fact that uh, Crimea sets a bad precedence so for secessionist movements uh, within China itself. So questions concerning Taiwan, Xinjiang, Tibet, is something the idea of allowing people to vote and to succeed is not appreciated, not welcomed, of course, by the Chinese regime. So that's why the question is very sensitive. And the line they attempted to strike is always highly diplomatic and very ambivalent. No clear support, yet no clear critique. And I think that's how it's going to stay. The history of the, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union towards the Chinese Communist Party, I would argue, is pretty bleak. That from the formation of the Chinese Communist Party, there are innumerable uh, instances where the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in its own self-interest sold the Chinese Communist Party down the river, in effect, and resulted at times in the murder of people in kind of uh, help foster a civil war. And the, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a pretty picture. And then after 1949 and the Russian support, they then when they left, or the Soviet Union support, they left. They not only left, they took the machinery with them. They absolutely tried to totally undermine China's development. How do you think that? Affects or does it affect, and if so, how does it affect uh, the Chinese leadership's view of partnering with, partnering with Russia on anything? Or if they basically said, this is now, some of this was 90 years ago, some of it 80 years ago, some of it 50 years ago, you know, swala, yeah. Well, I think that the historic memories, especially memories of humiliation, do matter a lot. And not only vis-a-vis -vis Russia, but also other nations that China has had conflicts with. So I don't think the Swanla approach is quite there. So they do really consider and think through and remember. But on the open side, you know, in terms of the public projections, this is not discussed very much. So if we think about public statements, there's no talk about this past, you know, uh, conflicts and tensions vis-a-vis um, -vis the Soviet Union party. At the same time, I think it, it's also helpful sometimes for the Chinese leadership to invoke some of these uh, past sufferings because it showcases that China is now the leader in this partnership. So the relationship has really changed and shifted gears in favor of China. So it, it's helpful to have the past as kind of contributing to this rhetoric by saying that we used to be the weaker partner uh, suffering from humiliation. Now we actually, we are partners, but we also are a stronghold. We are the ones that Russia is waiting for investments from. We are the ones who are going to work with them on the gas pipeline. All those projects would not be possible without a stronger role from China. So in some ways it could be useful, I think, but from what I've seen in public statements, this is not invoked very frequently, unlike the agreement about the land, which, which continues to be present um, in Chinese discourses. So you think the delay in the, in the gas pipeline is a reflection of political tension or a reflection of the drop in energy prices? Because the 
it's dropped so much, you kind of, you know, yeah, it's, it's really a, worth doing yeah. anymore. It's a mix of both uh, factors. There is the drop in gas prices, which does make a lot of people on the Russian side especially suspicious if this is still a, even a deal to consider. Is this worth pursuing? Um, Russian side wanted to originally pursue a very different route of energy exports going through Xinjiang and through the West. That's something that China did not support. They didn't want that route. So the Eastern Siberia route was something that was very contentious to begin with and not as beneficial from the economic standpoint uh, to Russia. It's Putin was really pushing forward the other route. So I think that now that the gas prices drop, there's more leeway to think, well, is this really a good deal? Is, there, is this worth considering? But also, politically and in terms of bureaucratic and technological tensions, they always existed. The pipeline was discussed so, so long for so many years, and it never quite became implemented. And now that we have a deal, there's still the same struggles on the ground. Who is going to build what? How is it going to get built? How many years is it going to take? Who is investing? And the corruption on the local level in Russia is also pervasive. So a lot of money goes from the top down you know, to these regions and doesn't get uh, settled in the right way. So this is another factor that's important to take into consideration. And there's a lot of discussion about Xi's personal relationship with Putin. And, you know, Putin has shown up at times that the Chinese wanted to face, such as the September 3rd military parade, when absolutely right, the media showed Putin and Xi up on, up on uh, in Tiananmen and, the, you know, on, on, on top of Mao's portrait. Uh, but what about that relationship? Is it close personally? Do they share things in common? Or is it just basically a, you know, we have these common interests, Whatever they are, we have these conflicting interests, and there's no real personal relationship. Do we have any evidence one way or the other? Well, the evidence of a personal relationship is what we see as it's projected to us, right, or to their domestic publics, and it does suggest that there is more of a stronger personal bond uh, than just the surface kind of notion of strategic, you know, partnership. The two leaders, as I mentioned before, favor one mode of governing that's quite different from, you know, what we see around the world, especially what we see in the West. And they tend to be critiqued together uh, for the way that they govern, very much from the top down, focused on the personalities, but also striking down various UN Security Council resolutions and agreements that are being held up by other nations. So I do think there's more to it than just the the kind of uh, surfaced approach. But at the same time, I think a lot of it gets projected specifically for domestic consumption. So it's not just that they want to be closest friends or that they share so much deeper understanding of one another, although it's hard to say which leaders really do have that. But I think in Chinese and Russian case, it's really beneficial, it's conducive to certain imagery that they want to project to their publics. So it's hard to distinguish the actual image from the reality because what we see very much is what we see on TV and what the meetings that get televised. What happens behind the scenes is something we have very little access to, I think, as scholars and as audiences. She talks about the China dream, the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Does Putin talk about that to the Russian people, kind of a Russian dream, and it's somewhat akin to Xi's China dream? So the Russian dream has invoked this notion of Eurasian Union, combining kind of the neighborhood together, so countries both in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, but also Central Asia, and building this larger dream uh, that would rekindle the losses from the collapse of the Soviet Union, something that President Putin has called the greatest crime or the greatest mistake of our times. So the dream is kind of cross-regional in a way, but with Russia at the center of it. So there is this notion of Russian dream, but when it comes to just Russia itself, uh, without the neighbors, there isn't the same rhetoric. I haven't seen a Russia dream invoked in the same way as a Chinese dream uh, by President Putin. When people look at, at Xi, there, the, today there is a somewhat harsh analysis of the anti-corruption drive, but I think the jury is still out that, you know, if you look at his book on the governance of China, 
that he is arguing that this is we need to go through this process, this transition, in order to kind of rid the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party of of corruption. And it is not a political agenda; it's truly an anti-corruption agenda.、Mm-hmm. Is it even possible to make that argument about Putin? About、Or、the anti-corruption campaign. That, that, that he believes in any way, shape, or form, or good government, or is this just all about corruption feathering people's nests? Well, in the in the past several years, in particular in the past year, with the economy slowing down, there are more impetus for the state in the Russian case to also at least show that they're improving governance or in rhetoric. But in the past ten years or so, there's been little emphasis on governance and more so on kind of top-down personalistic leadership that that makes decisions in a close, tight group. And there's very little discussion about any kind of feedback channels from society. Or even anti-corruption campaigns on the scale of China. So I think the dimension you mentioned is really important. This idea of focusing on governance, even if it comes at a high cost and is highly contentious, versus not focusing or not discussing governance as the premise of、uh, political stability and legitimacy in the case of Putin. So I think this continues to be a big distinction and、uh, something that differentiates、um, the two personalistic styles as they go forward. My last question, and I want to open it to this great audience, but, but.、Um One of the things in political purges in China, when there's political dojong struggle, the、um, people are arrested, people are put in prison. It's rare that people are are assassinated and murdered. That is not the case in Russia. It seems we see people regularly being assassinated either in Russia or even outside of Russia. Why so? What's the difference in these two kind of? What's the? You understand both. What's the difference? Why do the Russians knock people off and the Chinese just put them in jail? Well, this is a very grim conclusion to an otherwise cheerful talk. But okay, <laughs> so let me try to deconstruct the, the the offenses. So in the Russian case and Chinese case, it is a big distinct distinction indeed in terms of how punishment is being.、Uh, Carried out.、Uh, I would argue, however, that we have to be careful about generalizing from the few cases of murders that we see in the news and that we talk about widely in, into the larger society. I mean, there are many journalists and activists in the Russian case who don't get murdered and who continue to do their work. However, they are heavily threatened and oftentimes they have、uh, significant physical retributions, but they are not dead. I don't know if that's cheerful. <laughs> okay, not not quite. Not very. Not very. Okay, but there is an important distinction in terms of like how to contain dissent and how to manage、uh, political critique in two contexts thus far. So in the Russian case, the approach so far has been very much post factum. So once things really go out of control, once a certain journalist or activist or particular leader or unit ends up really provoking the system at large. Uh, for a long term, for a long time period,、uh, there is a punishment that's invoked in a very crude, cruel, and、uh, unforgiving way that's not negotiable by anyone. So this physical retaliation comes in a post-factum manner. At the same time, the signals that are sent down to journalists and to activists on regular basis, preemptively, are not as pervasive as we see in China, where a lot of reporters. Um, journalists and other actors receive various signals and instructions on what to do, how to report, how to behave, and in turn, they are in close touch with authorities about how the regime and how the political system is shaping up itself. You don't see the same thing on the Russian side. So, as a result, there are fewer post factum, I think, punishments. There are fewer resorting to, you know, this kind of offenses, dramatic murders or poisonings, etc. But more so. Something happens before, so a report will get cut out before it's even published. You don't have to go through all this、uh, cruel punishment, but that requires a lot of resources. 
So in a way, it's much more resource um, intensive to constantly monitor, to engage with different members of society in the Chinese case, as opposed to punishing the very few and thereby threatening the rest in the case of Russia. So more resources, I think, are spent in the Chinese case. Let me open the um, back here and oh, got a lot of hands. Okay. So uh, please identify yourself. Yeah. Sure. I'm John Herman. I'm a partner at Dorsey and Whitman. Uh, I, I guess I have a couple of questions, but the first one uh, relates to Russia's reaction to China's land grab in the South China Sea. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that you. I made some oblique reference mm -hmm. to it earlier, but uh, can you give us a little bit more on that? And secondly, uh, as a reflection of the, uh, the talk that we heard a month ago with China expanding in, in various ways, and maybe not so much uh, in Africa and other parts of the world, how how do Africa, how do uh, Russia and China uh, compete in their efforts to to broaden their own uh, uh, spheres of influence uh, in, uh, if you will, third world areas? Great questions. Thank you. Should I just answer them first? Yes. Okay. So the first question about the reaction to South China Sea. I haven't studied it very closely, so I don't want to exaggerate uh, the comments, but I, from what I've read and seen, there's diplomatic statements that are kind of akin to China's statements vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, the notion of you know, implicit support, but no, you know, kind of direct statement supporting military action and not promising any more resources, you know, assisting China in any military intervention. So nothing very explicit, but at the same time, there is an oblique kind of diplomatic language that's being used by, in Russian media in particular, with, the, with regards to Ch South China Sea. When it comes to competition globally, you mentioned Africa and, I guess, beyond Africa, the global global dominance. I think China is doing a lot more work in this domain than, than Russia, but where Russia is doing quite well and where I think China might be learning some facets of its uh, acts are actually in the information information domain. So Russia Today uh, is a TV channel that's aimed at global audiences. It has been arguably much more effective in attracting uh, viewership than Chinese CCTV9 and um, similar programs uh, on Chinese TV that are aimed at in English language or at other audiences beyond China. So information games is one part in which I think Russia appears to be going forward and going forward quite aggressively and strongly, and that might be a domain in which China might be also adapting some facets, but not so much in terms of actual development and engagement across regions. I think Russia has a lot to handle as it is in its near abroad. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Carl Minster Fordham Law School. I really appreciate your, your talk. I was interested, you'd mentioned the uh, just sort of the learning that goes on from one country to the other, and, uh, and particularly in your own field in the media. Um, my impression is that Russian management of the media, although it's been increasing, it really has been, it's much less controlled than the Chinese, the Chinese internet. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of Russian efforts to sort of work on managing the media. To what extent are they learning from China? And conversely, what are the Chinese learning from the Russians? Okay. Great question. So first of all, about the learning and the diffusion of practices, and nobody in Russia will admit that they're learning from China. So <laughs> in terms of actually un un unpacking it further and going there and asking those questions, they would never say, yes, we learned this information management technique uh, from the Chinese side. They'll say they came up with it themselves. So that's something that's very tricky to, to, to claim, right? But at the same time, we can observe certain trends. And in the past several years, since the White Ribbon Movement in Moscow, where 
thousands of protesters came out uh, against fraudulent elections, and many protesters came out specifically uh, with regard to Putin's re-election, you know, posing against it. As a result of that, in the aftermath, the regime has really reassessed its approach to the media and the internet, which, as you rightly pointed out, was relatively free up until the past several years. Now there are increasing laws and various mechanisms in place that are being reinvented and expanded uh, on a monthly basis sometimes. There are new laws that are passed by Russian parliament, the Duma, that aims to contain online um, reporting, activism, and all kinds of similar notion of, say, rumors, the notion of fake rumors, false rumors. That's the campaign that was uh, carried out in China. There are similar campaigns that are being done by Russian authorities vis-a-vis -vis rumor spreading, rumor mongering, and there are punishments that are being installed as a result of that uh, from financial fines to cutting out the entire social media account of a given user. So I think we do see some readaptation of stronger measures, in particular reevaluating the role of the internet. To what extent can we have this completely free internet and maintain that while having more challenges to manage domestically and upholding popular support? So more and more of that. And the other important dimension of that beyond control is actually persuasion. The notion of trollers, online commentators, the 50 cent army in the case of China and paid commentators in the case of Russia, there are similar efforts that first appeared in China and then suddenly appear in Russia. So one could presume there's some cross-diffusion of those tactics, which, by the way, are now also in Hungary, and they appear all over the world in all kinds of uh, societies. So that's something that seems to be spreading beyond Russia and China. Thank you, Steve. Rick New from CV Star. We're a uh, global financial services company. We do business in 40-some countries, including business interests both in uh, China and Russia. So when we look at entering or developing business in uh, countries in that region, we not only look at uh, government-steered media campaigns, which will give us a sense of uh, to what extent we have to be mindful of geopolitical uh, risks. We also pay a lot of attention to sentiments on the ground. Mm. For example, if you interview a regular... Joe or Jill on the street of Beijing or Shanghai and ask them if they want to send their kids to uh, overseas institutions, probably the majority of them, overwhelming majority of them, will say probably the United States, mm -hmm. not Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, if uh, you're a Chinese businessman or woman you want to invest overseas, more than likely they will also choose destinations like the United States, uh, not Russia, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. That citizenship level community level likability factor is very key mm. sometimes to not only business interests but also to government interests. Mm -hmm. I wonder uh, if we could comment about that ground level sentiment mm. in the minds of Russian citizens towards China and the United States mm. uh, in a similar manner that I commented about the Chinese citizen sentiment towards Russia and the United States. Mm. Thank you. Great comment. Thank you so much. So actually the public opinion polls on the Russian side uh, when it comes to which countries they're, they're seeing as positive, negative, and how they perceive China in particular, the sentiment has been increasingly positive. So there is something to be told about this imagery projections, but also with Russia being isolated from the rest of the world and receiving information that suggests that the world is against Russia, basically, especially the West. So when I was last in Russia some years ago now when doing research, not just visiting, but uh, carrying out this research, I found more negative perspectives and suspicion, and in fact, very few experts and uh, scholars were even interested in studying China, which really surprised me at that time. Uh, now, just some years later, first of all, there are more, there's more expertise. There are very talented Russian experts who focus on China, but there's also more positive sentiment on the ground amongst like an average Joe you might encounter on the street in Moscow. 
But that, I think, has something to do with the opportunities, you know, a, an average Russian citizen might have in terms of their tourism destination, business investments, um, as well as, you know, where to send their kids to school. But there are a lot of Russians that are moving to China for those purposes, uh, for especially actually to buy houses and to settle down. So that's a different picture, a mirror image, in fact, from the Chinese side, as you mentioned, who are likely to send their kids to the United States, Canada, or Europe. So an imbalanced picture, but I think an important one. <coughs> I'm Bill Einbruster, retired journalist. Uh, you mentioned that they fell short of their target of the $100 billion in trade, but it wasn't clear to me roughly what it was, maybe $60 billion or so. Yes, it's 35% drop. That's what's been reported. Right. So and, and roughly what was the balance uh, between Chinese exports and Russian mm. exports? I don't have the exact numbers, but there is, well, let me think. Chinese and Russian exports. Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers in terms of that, but there is more exports in terms of goods, commercial goods, etc., going from China to Russia, and more energy resources going from Russia to China. So supposedly the relationship should be very good economically and very complementary, but in reality, as we see, the picture is very different. Is it largely consumer goods? Consumer goods, yeah, consumer goods. Merchandise, cheap, you know, clothes, etc. Hi, I'm Hi. Um, Since we are in the United States, and you have made a case in terms of Russia and China's relationship, it's somewhat challenged. It's not 100% perfect fit. Um, since we are in the United States, I just want to ask, in terms of U.S. policy, mm -hmm. in terms of the, its alliance with the Asian countries, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, Vietnam, uh, India, mm -hmm. uh, because some of those alignment seems uh, somewhat... Uh, also hostile to China, at right. least from the China's perspective. So does that force China to go north to form an alliance with Russia? Mm -hmm. And because of the sanctions in Europe, does that force Russia to find the closest neighbor to supply its meat and all the other products for its citizens? So um, for something like this, what should the United States do? Actually, I think you know, if we want to talk about three parties, the uh, President Xi and President Obama has probably the best uh, bilateral relationship of any leader between the United States and China. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, China is not really abandoning uh, United States. No, right? yeah. So I just want to see what should the United States do in terms of this situation? So, yeah, great question. So you're completely right that the, the relationships U.S. is forming uh, with Asian partners in some ways at least appear to antagonize China and in the relationships that Russia has now or has has lacked upon in Europe are antagonizing Russia and moving it towards China. But I think the key point of this talk was to show that indeed, even though the forces are in place, the relationship is quite much weaker than it appears you know, on the ground. Even though they have all these opportunities for partnership, there are a lot of tensions and suspicions that undermine uh, their relationship in the future. So if we think about the U.S. Uh, role, U.S.-China relationship, as you pointed out, is by far stronger than, I think, China-Russia relationship, especially in economic terms. You know, they're the biggest partners. So U.S. doesn't really have a lot to worry about in terms of, I think, China-Russia overwhelming or outpacing or overpowering uh, the United States. But that said, more integration, more engagement with individual countries, with both China and Russia separately, as I mentioned, by engaging, for example, other Asian powers in Russia indirectly, not, not able to invest themselves, but being able to push others to embark on some investment activity in Russia, which is hard. But if there was more of that done, there would be more rebalancing. There wouldn't be as much dependency on Russia vis-a-vis -vis China. 
and improving our relationship with China is something that's at the heart of this triangle as well, which is already a good relationship, but it's also very tense. So we, we can't call it, you know, completely perfect either. So I wouldn't say that there's a lot to be done about China-Russia relationship per se, but I think there's a lot to understand in terms of how the two regimes are evolving and how much they're learning from one another and how much they're changing because of their interactions. So China is a very different China today than it was three to five years ago, I would say. And part of it does have a little bit to do, at least, with Russia. So that's something to keep in mind as we think about China, engage China, and develop our policy vis-a-vis China. Hi, my name is Ina. Hello. Um, my question is regarding the future relationship between Russia and China. It looks like when we when we look at this video, we see it's all about Putin, Putin, Putin. It's their personal relationship. Yeah. So in the unlikely event of Putin not staying in power mm. after 2011, sorry, 2018 elections, how do you think this relationship will proceed? Well, it's a very it's a very uh, difficult thing to predict who is going to replace Putin and whether he will get replaced. But I imagine that whoever replaces him, if there is indeed the notion of replacement, if there is no popular, uh, you know, uprising against uh, the regime as a whole, if somebody replaces somebody from the inner circle, I think the relationship could persist um, in similar terms. But it very much depends on the personality that becomes a leader. So it's very hard to tell without knowing who is going to be in charge, uh, what kind of dy- dynamics they will have, you know, between C and. Uh, the X mystery on the Russian side. I think it's still very early to say that, though, because it looks like from everything I've analyzed and, and read, that Russia is reinforcing its mode of uh, both control but also societal management and so forth that suggests that Putin wants to stay in power longer than 2018. At least that's what I would say. Do we have a hand here? Hi, my name is Ken from Citigroup. So uh, part of my question was already asked, so <laughs> And uh, the other question I would like to ask is about, uh, you know, in the geopolitical scene, if you see that there is a, as a, as a, as a, as a like, a, a solar system, there are some couple of other planets that, that are rotating. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and what do you see India, you know, for, like mm-hmm. how its gravity is going to play into the, the whole system there, especially mm-hmm. between these two countries, given the very interesting uh, military uh, lateral relations like, in the past 30, 40 mm. years. Yeah, well, India is, is, is something that hasn't been written about or talked about so much, especially on the Russian side. But from what I've read recently, it looks like they're turning more towards not only India, but also other Asia-Pacific nations and trying to build separate ties from those with China because there's a lot of disappointment with how much China has invested and how much China is willing to give to Russia, especially in times of crisis. So I think India could be a potential new you know, power in some ways, but it's also very tricky because of its relationship with China and the U.S., so it's kind of, it's a, it's a contentious force in a way. But I do see on the Russian side in particular more efforts to engage India. Uh, I should add that on May 9th, at this very spot, we will be hosting, uh, or Dorsey will be hosting China in the World with the focus being on India by someone who has just written a book on uh, China, India, and the United States. Anjay Manuel from, is coming in from Stanford University to, uh, to give that talk. Uh, Anders Kaur, the um, China is China has uh, I think the economy is something like ten times that of Russia, Russia. Mm-hmm. and also China plays a uh, client role in a sense to not, not in an IR sense, but China um, purchases oil from uh, Russia, I believe. Right. So in both respects, China is the senior partner in that relationship mm-hmm. uh, by quite a bit. So how does Putin, who's a bit of an ego 
guy, right, uh, react to that? And how does that affect the relationship? Mm, great question. So in the Russian media projections and the way that this relationship is portrayed, there's a strong emphasis on equality and undermining any kind of senior-junior partnership rhetoric that you've just rightly pointed out. So the notion of them not being equal is something that's not stressed or talked about very often. However, a lot of commentators and analysts do talk about the unequal nature of this partnership, but there's a lot of awareness, I think, on the Russian side amongst analysts and policymakers that it's not a, you know, a 50-50 relationship. So it's not something that's ignored, but it's something that's underplayed, I think, in official statements, because as you said, you know, there's no use for Putin to project himself as the weaker guy. In fact, in a lot of statements and coverage, they really are shown as walking side by side, and there's a very forceful image of Putin as somebody who's equal, uh, if not stronger than C. So they tried to very much to balance out, I think, the reality from the from the images here. Yeah. What price? At what price does? What price in oil does Russia really begin to have economic? It's already had some economic difficulties, but if oil drops further, now it's obviously gone up somewhat. At what price do they fail? Can they fail to meet? kind of existing obligations and we really have a political crisis in uh, Russia? Well, it's a very difficult question because there have been many predictions that even at this price we would have a crisis by now. So this has a lot to do with like the nature of society and like the strong support for President Putin that somehow manages to balance out the, the actual statistics, the data about the crisis. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of people who are already suffering from the current economic situation. So the issue is that one might predict the collapse or one might predict a certain crisis, but it appears that there are other instruments in play that still foster strong support uh, for the leadership, despite very severe economic challenges. And some people argue that Russia has suffered so much economically that it's able to forego almost anything until they really reach a complete crash point, then maybe something will happen. But we've seen protests in 2011, and they were very impressive, but they have been subdued and the ratings of Putin, at least in official ratings, are still very high. So I think it's very difficult to talk about the change or the tipping point at this time. What do you think that, what, what, I mean, China's the world's largest energy importer now. Russia has been an enormous loser in this drop of energy prices. What do you think Xi and Putin say to each other <coughs> when they're talking about energy? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe they try not to talk about it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very sensitive, t- sensitive well, a topic. In a lot of ways, it's, yeah. there's a complementarity. There is, Obviously, yeah. there's, there's a tension in it, but there's also a complementarity in it that, that, you know, Putin would say to the Chinese, well, you know, we'll, we'll supply you. That if push comes to shove and the South China Sea should cut off your oil imports or something, we'll be there to help you in a way use the geopolitics mm-hmm. of the situation to improve Russia's relationship with China. Though I, I kind of doubt that happened. No. Yeah, I, I doubt that there's such strong statements that are being made. I think there's a well, lot of... Privately. Private, no, sure. They're certainly not going to talk about it right. publicly. I mean, what do you think they say to each other about North Korea? Hmm. <laughs> You're putting me in a difficult spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think privately, of course, many things could be expressed in a more frank terms. Well, what's the Russian interest in North Korea? Clearly, the Chinese are bearing the greater weight there also. Mm-hmm. Well, the Russian, the Russian stance has been consistently in support of stability, that similar rhetoric that China has has projected. The idea that we don't want collapse, we don't want chaos, and Russia has projected a very similar, in, in that sense, aligning with, uh, with China's interests. So in private, maybe it's something else, more tensions come out, but in public, that's what, that's what they're projecting and talking about. You think the Chinese think, once again, you know, I would argue it was duplicity on, beha- on the part of the 
Communist Party and the Soviet Union that somewhat lured China into the Korean War. You think they think about that, or they don't view it that way? Mm, I haven't they, heard people talking about this, but I haven't. They don't seen, talk much about it. No, history, well, not about this particular element. But next I, time I will ask. We have run over time. I apologize, but I thank you so much for what has been a wonderfully interesting. Thank you very much.